Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Thank you. I'm Jose Bowen, president of Goucher's. My great pleasure to welcome you to Goucher's annual Dr. Myra Berman Kurtz Class of 66 seminar. Uh, this notable speaker series was endowed by the late Myra Berman Kurtz Class of 66 and her husband, Stuart to bring leaders from a variety of fields to campus to share their personal leadership experience and professional experience with our students. So Stuart Kurtz and his daughter, Rachel, are here with us tonight, and I hope you will join me in thanking them for giving our community members, especially our students, this great opportunity uh, to listen and learn. who will present the 2019 Myra Berman Kurtz Class of 66 seminar. Dr. Nicholas is a professor of pediatrics at the David and Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA and continues to practice neonatology at the Olive View UCLA Medical Center in Los Angeles. As the Vice President of Innovation and Medical Communication at Prolactica Bioscience, she also serves as a critical advisor and spokesperson for Prolactica's research and development team in the formulation of next generation products derived from human milk. Dr. Nicholas is passionate about uncovering the therapeutic potential for human milk and transforming that knowledge into meaningful solutions in healthcare across the lifespan. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Nicholas to the campus tonight and thank her for her presentation. Do I need to speak into this for the recording or no? It's going to be restrictive, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Jose. And it's very nice to meet you, uh, the Kurtz family, and thank you for sponsoring my lecture. Um, I have a confession to make, which is I saw Lydia Vilikomarov give a similar type of lecture in 1982, and I always wanted to be <laughs> a lecturer at Goucher. So this is a dream come true. So thank you uh, very much. So, um, and I have to applaud whoever put the poster together. It is absolutely beautiful. I sent a lovely corporate photograph of myself, and then when the uh, flyer arrived, I was thrilled to see that it would now emulate the passion with which I have, and it matches perfectly with the, uh, the photograph. So just to disclose, and Jose mentioned, I'm the VP of Innovation and Medical Communication at Prolacta, but I also serve as a uh, professor of pediatrics at the David Geffen School of Medicine. So most of you know me as I stand here today and don't know where I came from, so I'm just gonna share a few photographs. So this is myself and my brother, sister, uh, and little tiny sister and my father taking a walk up the hill by our house. And we spent our entire childhood romping through these fields. And I'm the one there uh, over the red line. And that was me when I was in second, second grade. But I probably had no idea what my future would be like from here. But perhaps I did because my, both my mother and my father certainly nurtured me to look beyond what was in front of me in those fields, although the natural world certainly inspired me to become the scientist and, and even the physician that I am. So, and I'm not one for sports analogies, but we played a lot of sports as kids. And softball games amongst the brother and three sisters was a regular routine. 
And I think I always had my eye on a ball. And I've highlighted it there for you. It's a little difficult to see. But catching the ball is what's really critical. And I think all of the places I've been in my life are times when I captured a ball without even perhaps realizing the significance of each step in that path. And the other thing I'm not is to go out on the internet and look for quotes that portray what I'm feeling when I see a photo, but I did that in this case. And it is, uh, this was Caitlin Sumter who played softball for the Kansas City Softball League. And she said, I am now and will always be me. But when it comes time to step out onto the field, me gets a little more dedicated, a little more serious, and nobody stands in my way. But that nobody stands in my way, of course, is with the elegance of a goucher gopher. <laughs> so it was 25 years ago that I met Baby Adam. And Baby Adam set my mission compass. And I think in a way that I didn't even realize. He was born just weighing under one pound. And before I tell you my story and um, traffic through that area, I want to just go through a few definitions so they're all talking the same language. And so why, what is preterm birth and why does it matter? What is human milk's therapeutic recipe? And what is the potential to derive therapeutics from human milk? And finally, what are the implications of human milk to lessen the severity and challenges of prematurity? So what on earth is preterm birth? Well, preterm birth, and these are key facts. The World Health Organization shares these with everyone. It's birth prior to 37 weeks of gestation. There are estimated to be about 15 million babies worldwide who are born prematurely. And the rate of preterm birth, when you look at the 164 countries where this data are available, is somewhere between 5 and 18 percent. And the complications of preterm birth are the leading cause of death of all infants, world, all children worldwide under the age of five, and the second leading cause of death for all infants under the age of one in this very great country of ours. Now, preterm birth, it's a worldwide problem. And I would like to stand here before you today and say, we are leaders in this. We don't have a problem. But guess what? We're number six. We create nearly half a million preterm babies every year. And these are against countries that don't have the spending in health care that we have. I think this is a problem. And prematurity, as I've suggested, is a major public health concern in the US. And this is the March of Dimes report card for preterm birth by state. It's released every year in November during prematurity month and you can find your favorite state and say what how are we doing and this report card over the last decade has improved dramatically improved by percentage points and they assign a grade just like college and that grade is based uh, upon where that state's prematurity rate falls relative to their set goal for that year which they keep adjusting down as the rates improve and as you can see, Maryland has a D. So that's not very good. We've seen California go from a D to a C to a B. And so the programs that are impacting this need resources, and resources in the right communities, because the prematurity rate is different depending on the community. 
African-American communities have the highest preterm birth rates. So we as a nation have a long way to go when our colleagues in Western Europe have a preterm rate of 6.7%. But what is of interest is the number of babies that are generated actually are higher in Europe. So they have equivalent numbers, but the rate on a population level is actually lower. But not all preterm babies are created equal. So preterm birth obviously is fetal life interrupted. So the earlier your life is interrupted as a fetus, and the sooner you arrive in the world, the greater the impact on your developing organ systems. So babies born at 23 weeks are far sicker and have more severe health complications than babies born at 32 weeks um, or later. So we put preterm babies into categories. It allows us to communicate. It allows us to standardize the clinical studies that we do. So everything less than 37 weeks, or technically 36 and 6 sevenths, we count by days, is considered preterm. But it's those babies that are in the very preterm or the extremely preterm categories that are of greatest health concern. And those are the infants that also happen to be in the very low birth weight, extremely low birth weight, incredibly low birth weight categories. And I think when I started pediatric training in the uh, beginning of the 1990s, I never expected incredibly low birth weight babies to do as well as they do today because of the interventions, most of them directed towards pulmonary care. So morbidity and mortality risk increases the lower your birth weight and the lower your gestational age. But how many babies does that mean for the United States? How many babies are generated each year into this category? Well, it's nearly 50,000 infants of, that are less than 1,500 grams that are generated every year. It doesn't sound like a big number when there are 3 million births per year, but those are babies that survive and go on. So the accumulation of infants that have chronic medical problems due to preterm birth is a significant uh, healthcare problem. What is important here and what I show you, and this, these are actually data uh, that were published in 2009, and it shows that the smaller you are, the higher your chances of dying, the more likely you are to have a chronic healthcare condition. And the timing of your birth is going to impact what you have a problem with. And one of the biggest problems that preterm babies used to have was respiratory insufficiency. And now we have exogenous surfactants that we administer immediately after birth, and we have steroids that we always give to the mother, which results in lung maturity. So now we have a huge population of patients that are going to develop other complications of prematurity but some of the ones we worry about are severe brain hemorrhage leading to cerebral palsy, and in this particular study, it was 6% of that cohort. Retinopathy of prematurity was essentially blindness, uh, was also in about 7%. Bronchopulmonary dysplasia, lung disease, being unable to breathe, your lungs, you're born too early, they never grow, they never develop, nearly 30%. Late infections and necrotizing enterocolitis look like little numbers. I mean, 5% doesn't sound like a lot, but many, but necrotizing enterocolitis patients, babies also have cerebral palsy. So you have multiple morbidities in a single patient. That becomes a significant issue. 
So why do preterm births matter? They matter for the individual infant and their family, but collectively they matter for our society. You have patients with cerebral palsy, autism, uh, attention deficit disorders, which are growing in number, blindness and deafness, sensory deficits are hard for our society, lung disease, high blood pressure, early kidney failure, recurrent infections, or even necrotizing enterocolitis and the loss of your intestine, never having the ability to be able to eat, anemia, and for government and healthcare, increased cost in the face of limited resources, and of course for society and for individual families themselves, incredible decreased well-being well, well and discord. So where's the value of human milk in preterm birth? So there's an interesting concept that human infants remain helpless. And for any of, well, for me that I have a, a daughter who's now become 25, they're helpless for a long time. <laughs> but in, human infants are helpless longer than newborns of any species. And they must go through this distinct period of gestation outside the womb before they are independent. There's some like baby turtles, they they're hatch from their eggs and they run to the water and they're on their own. But this period of extra exterior gestation, we cannot just dismiss it. And in fact, that period and the events that occur during that period will have an incredible impact on that baby's future physical and medical needs, as well as emotional and psychological development. And there's been an interesting comparison and contrast with amniotic fluid and breast milk. They actually share, and you can't see the details there, but I certainly could provide it to you, the, those that are interested. There are lots of overlaps, suggesting that breast milk is the external amniotic fluid for babies. And so it's critical for normal term infants to have access to breast milk, but even more so for those preterm infants who are still technically gestating. And this is Dr. Professor Alan Lucas from the University of College in London. And he figured this out nearly 30 years ago. He actually said, well, if amniotic fluid is the fluid of the gestation and breast milk is a surrogate for that, I bet breast milk is gonna have a significant impact on these clinical outcomes of these patients. So he took a cohort and he looked at infants that were receiving breast milk, and these are preterm infants, and he looked at their compatriots that were receiving a cow milk-based formula. And he found that the risk of neck segregated completely with those infants receiving the cow milk-based formula, suggesting that human milk was in fact protective. And that was 30 years ago. And we still have infants in this country that are receiving cow milk-based formulas. So it's obviously very, the process of adoption is very complicated, although it shouldn't. So here we are back to baby Adam, who weighed under one pound. So you go to your refrigerator, you pull out a pound of butter, and you take out a stick, and that's what he weighed. Not the stick, but the three that are left. He was born at 24 weeks, weighed 443 grams, and he suffered all of the complications of preterm birth. And this is one of the first babies I cared for as a new attending at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. Human milk feeding was not the standard of care. All we had to offer was formula. So unlike 
Dr. Lucas's insights, which were available, published five years prior to his birth, we still used formula. And so what is this disease, necrotizing enterocolitis, which is an affliction primarily of preterm newborns? We've known about it for a long time. And obviously, preterm birth and preterm birth survival was not as high as it is now because of our obstetrical and postnatal interventions. But it's been published in the literature since the 50s. In fact, it was a radiologist who first published the first case of necrotizing enterocolitis. Uh, but there was a first US series in 1973. It's one of the most common and serious acquired conditions. And it can be mild injury to the gut, or it can be severe devastation, perforation, and loss of the bowel. And the survivors, those that do survive, even with surgical and medical interventions, still suffer from long-term bowel uh, dysfunction, malnutrition, cerebral palsy, and early death. And what has been borne out based on Dr. Lucas's early observation is that human milk is the only, underscore only, intervention that prevents necrotizing enterocolitis. And this is a multicenter retrospective cohort study, which was published by Dr. Amy Hare in 2016, who is one of the collaborators. And she found that necrotizing enterocolitis was statistically significantly reduced among infants fed human milk as compared to those that received a cow milk product, as were statistical reductions in other important diseases, lung disease or bronchopulmonary dysplasia, blindness, retinopathy of prematurity, infections, and even overall mortality. So these are some examples, and again, I can provide you with them, but just so you can see, there's a robust body of literature to support human milk feeding. And those are shown on those two slides. And these are studies that we're aware of. And I was just at the Pediatric Academic Society's meeting in Baltimore, and there were more sessions on human milk and more posters on human milk and its benefit than I have ever seen before. So we're hoping for a real change in practice. So human milk reduces lots of disease of preterm newborns. The rates of neck, infection, and I'll refer to necrotizing enterocolitis as neck because it's faster and easier to say, death, cerebral palsy, even metabolic syndrome. So later onset metabolic syndrome and then blindness. And so this leads to the concept that milk is really medicine. In fact, the American Academy of Pediatrics in their 2012 guidelines, and this does drive practice, said that human milk, breastfeeding and human milk should be the normative standard for all infants. But very importantly, there's enough evidence to support that all preterm infants should receive human milk. Now what they need to say is that all very low birth weight infants must receive human milk, so to be determined. So how does human milk reduce neck and infections? We know that human milk is optimal nutrition. Everything's easily digested. Uh, it does need to be fortified, and a human milk fortifier is obviously optimal. But human milk is a complex matrix. In fact, in some states, human milk is regulated like a tissue because it has living things in it. If it's pasteurized, obviously, there are no longer living things. Other states regulate it as a food. So optimal nutrition has all the good stuff, the right carbohydrates, the right protein, fat, minerals, and vitamins. But it also has thousands of bioactive molecules, some of which we are unable to purify uh, to high purity or we don't even really know about. But they all come 
from the mother and her breast epithelium. And all of these, many of these molecules actually target infection, immunity, and repair, and even metabolism. So they have a robust role in the transition of the infant. Now I've just said that the crux of necrotizing enterocolitis and sepsis is actually the clustering of bad bacteria. And a cow milk-based diet selects for the growth of these bad bacteria and or harmful bacteria. And I'm using a very general word because I thought we might have those in the audience that wouldn't be as familiar with the words such as pathogen and commensals, although I think now with the way the, you know, the science of everyone has improved. But a cow milk-based diet actually promotes the growth of these harmful bacteria. And that creates a situation called dysbiosis or a disordered microbiome. And that together with the cow milk proteins damages the epithelium, permits the bacterial invasion, activates the immune system and leads to this vicious cycle which can lead to disruption of the intestinal lining. So dysbiosis is central to neck and sepsis. So is there anything in human milk that actually is there for this job and primarily this job alone? And you can probably tell by the way I phrased that, that yes, there is, these oligosaccharides. And what are oligosaccharides? So human, they're called human milk oligosaccharides because of their presence in milk. And that's not to say that other mammalian milks don't have oligosaccharides. And it's one fun fact that bears have more oligosaccharides than humans do. And it turns out bears use these during hibernation as an energy source. And that's different from humans, which don't hibernate. But human milk oligosaccharides are the third most abundant component in human milk. And statistically, people have predicted that there are over 200 different oligosaccharides present in human milk, although most milks have somewhere between 64 to 100 different structures. They follow a basic blueprint, and it's not that important that uh, we talk about that, but lactose is the backbone, and then they have a couple of side chains. And the side chains seem to be correlated with the function. And those side chains are acetylglycosamine, fucose, and sialic acid. They're structurally diverse, and we won't go through all of the significance of this, but they can be elongated and branched, and the orientation of the chains can be different. But all in all, with the neutral being the predominant, you end up with around 200 structures. But guess what? They're not nutrition for baby. And this is, these are actually the gastric contents of an albatross, a seabird, <laughs> which are not digestible, obviously. But human milk oligosaccharides act to shape the microbiome. They are a primary energy source for bacteria. And not all bacteria, only certain bacteria have the enzymes that are necessary either to encounter the oligosaccharide in its environment, it breaks it down into particles that then it shares with its microbiome or they're internalized and metabolized internally. They're very stable in the stomach, resistant to digestion. They do circulate at low levels in blood. They seem to be concentrated in urine, which is interesting. But they're a primary energy source for these intestinal bacteria. And they do other things. So the energy source uh, and the expansion of the, of the uh, helpful bacteria is their prebiotic function. They're most well known and you may see references to that in the literature. They also act as decoys. They look like uh, glyco, 
uh, glycosylation units found on epithelial cells that viruses and bacteria use to uh, up, be uptake, uh, to uh, facilitate uptake into epithelial lining. And then in circulation, and well studied in vitro, less so in vivo, they seem to modulate the immune system um, and balance immunity. But what's so special about oligosaccharides? Well, if you look and compare human milk to cow milk, cow milk has anywhere from 10 to 20 to even higher fold fewer oligosaccharides than human milk. So that is a very distinctive difference. So in addition to having a different protein content in cow milk compared to human milk, cow milk just doesn't have these oligosaccharides. Baby cows just don't need them. Human babies need them. So human milk for human babies. There is now a move afoot in the industry to add oligosaccharides that can be, some of them can be chemically synthesized to cow milk-based formula to make formula more like human milk, which has its own set of implications because of the unintended consequences when you take a little bit of something that's a mixture and you put it without its partners to be continued. So how do oligosaccharides impact necrotizing enterocolitis? Well, they block dysbiosis. That's a very straightforward hypothesis, which then would block the invasion and block the inflammation. And if we take a, a pharmacist view of human milk and drug development, we say, what can we purify? What can we concentrate? And what, we, what can we use, apply that to? What disease could we uh, do? And I want to make very clear that in our processing of human milk, we generate what we call byproduct, but some of you may refer to as a waste product. It's something that's generated during manufacture that's no longer useful in the product. So we never deprive a small baby of human milk. And we can talk about that uh, offline if you're interested. But we generate lots and lots of liquid, which is loaded with, as it turns out, human milk oligosaccharides. So we said, let's try and develop a concentrate that would be suitable for use, so non-nutritional feeding of human milk oligosaccharides to be applied to these various conditions. And we've come to realize that dysbiosis is central to so many diseases that we encounter, anywhere from Parkinson's disease to schizophrenia to colon cancer to inflammatory bowel disease. One target that we actually became interested in is Clostridium difficile associated diarrhea which is a public health problem. It's the leading healthcare-associated infection. It, uh, there are over uh, half a million cases, and 100,000 of those cases will become recurrent. The problem is the treatment of Clostridium difficile is with an antibiotic. It treats the infection, but then it puts the gut at risk for dysbiosis. And so our thought is let's regrow the garden of the microbiome with that substance that was needed in the beginning to grow the garden. And so we have a very um, capable product development engineer who was able to develop a process using this clear liquid you see there to make a concentrate. And when we analyzed the concentrate, it had all of the human milk oligosaccharides in it. It was preserved in concentration. And then we said, well, we preserved the distribution, does it work? We started with in vitro studies and used a, a model where uh, stool samples are actually taken and you 
seed in the human milk oligosaccharide and you ask, do those bacterium that normally respond, that normally metabolize the human milk oligosaccharides, do they expand? And what you can see on the far left side is when there's no human milk oligosaccharide added, if you look for the little green, there's very, very small amount. But then with increasing concentration, the green gets very large. So it comes to represent the majority of the bacteria in that particular sample. But does it work across the lifespan? Because Clostridium difficile is not necessarily just a disease of children. It's becoming more common, but the majority of patients with this are actually the elderly or the older uh, patients. So does it work with the elderly? So we did an in vivo study by doing a uh, control clinical trial of feeding of human milk oligosaccharides in healthy people. And this is just a stylized representation of the data, which shows an increase in the abundance of the health, helpful bacteria, bifidobacterium, in study subjects after eating the human milk oligosaccharide concentrate. And perhaps one of the more thrilling aspects of this is we gave it in different doses over a week, and we saw a dose-dependent increase. So it was behaving very much like what you would hope for with a drug. And this wasn't for naught because the Federal, uh, Federal Drug Administration actually approved us to do a phase one trial with a human milk oligosaccharide concentrate. And it's one of the first instances in which the FDA has allowed this to happen. It's infinitely safe if you think about all of the years that babies have fed human milk. If we think about the tens of thousands of patients that have eaten product that this particular substrate derives from. And that certainly enabled the approval, but the science and the demonstration of the positive effect also was important. And that trial is ongoing, and we won't have, um, and it's a primarily a safety trial, although the patients do have Clostridium difficile and they're in remission having, uh, having had a course of antibiotics, we won't have the outcome for at least a year or a year and a half. But it's the first time which we, when I'm wearing my corporate hat as a, as a nutrition company, we now have a non-nutritive drug derived from human milk, which can be apl applied to patients that can't take breast milk as a nutrition. So babies who've just developed necrotizing enterocolitis, where you want to improve the way their microbiome is established. Babies following cesarean section delivery that haven't had, I think that came up in our conversation today with the post-baccalaureate students. Or even post-surgical feeding where you just want to put a little in, but you can't actually feed through the gut. And of course, Clostridium difficile colitis. So we see a tremendous world of opportunity in human milk. But is innovation just a new recipe? And the answer is, it isn't just a new recipe because you have to apply best practices. We don't want to get ahead of ourselves and cause harm. And best practices, you know, perhaps sometimes frustratingly, take time and they take money, but they're highly worthwhile. So we really believe that human milk is nature's best example of a functional food. There's the nutritional teaspoon, and then there's the medical teaspoon, and we certainly have a lot to learn. 
And I also believe that this is a durable solution to the unraveling that's created by preterm birth. But I'm committed to science, I'm committed to discovery and development, but I'm really committed to saving babies. And this is little Mika, who, very much like baby Adam, was born at 24 weeks, weighing less than a pound, and he received exclusive human milk. And we are committed to him and his family because he was our Christmas card this year. So I'll stop there and I'll take any questions. Yes. Thank you for a fascinating presentation. I have an observation and a couple of questions if I may. Uh, in some cultures around the world, uh, when a pregnant mother having given birth doesn't have sufficient breast milk, uh, other mothers in the community uh, help out and provide that breast milk uh, to the child. Uh, I'm not aware that in America that is a given practice Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll start with the last question first, because I, I do not know the literature around, around the composition of our closest cousin's milk, and I certainly should. Um, I've read more about the bear because of the striking contrast. Um, so I'm going to get back to you on that answer, because that obviously is a very important one. One would anticipate similarities, and whether diet is controlling the development of these oligosaccharides, there's certainly evidence to suggest that. If that precursors, for example, sialic acid in your diet, may, you may have actually higher, higher human milk oligosaccharides that have a sialic acid residue. So a uh, very good question. Uh, the first question comes, you know, in, in societies where human milk sharing is a way of life and offers that child a benefit, I think we all have to support it. And in this country, human milk sharing was a thing of the past, certainly, and, it, and is dissuaded now only because of the studies that have been done that have looked at milk that's available on the internet, which is the internet is the passenger of informal sharing. And what was found in that study was a significant problem with foodborne illness, exposure to unanticipated drugs, the milk was diluted. Uh, the milk was improperly handled. So in this nation, the way it is, informal sharing is, is, is not uh, recommended. Although, you know, even if it's your sister, they say there are things that you'll never know about your sister. So it's not recommended. Um, so I think the difference is, is between 
a society where there are resources and a society where there are not. But obviously, it's a risk because you don't know entirely. But wet nursing, obviously, is, is a, an extension of that. Um, and I had your second question at the top of my mind, and it just, yes, thank you. Yes, yeah, that's a, a great uh, question, actually. Um, and fecal microbiome transplants are an accepted practice now and a growing practice for Clostridium difficile-associated diarrhea. And it is essentially taking a fecal slurry from a healthy person and giving it to a person whose microbiome has been unearthed by Clostridium difficile. And some of the issues are it seems to be working, but there's a subset of people where it's not working. My druthers are that there's a combination therapy, and one of the other combination therapies to consider would be with probiotics, with, with uh, purified bacteria rather than a fecal uh, slurry. And there are, just as there are donor milk banks, there are now fecal banks. So you can go and pick up a stool, or a physician will order it for you if you have um, so if you, if you have the uh, in, infection. So it's growing, but side effects. Obesity is, is an, uh, not an uncommon one. So if your donor was obese, you then acquire that uh, phenotype. And then other unintended consequences because the host had all of the antibodies and T cells to recognize all of those viruses that aren't a problem in that environment, but once they're transplanted to somebody, they become a potential threat. So I think the jury's still out, but certainly I think there's a role for a more prescripted microbiome plus our human milk oligosaccharides because they are the food that sow the seeds and allow the bacteria to establish. Thank you, Thank you for your questions. Yeah, so um, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, your best hope for your baby is what you do long before they're born. And um, I think things have improved dramatically in my career, but we can certainly go further. Uh, some of the things are basic healthcare resources for mothers and education, diet, uh, smoking cessation, and those are the things that are actually reducing the preterm birth rates in many places, is just getting mothers to stop smoking. If you can get them to do it completely, but certainly during the gestation. So public health efforts to improve education around pregnancy and um, reducing the risk factors that lead to early birth. Control of um, even some of the multiple gestations. And so I know for a fact, for example, in Southern California, that we have seen an incredible surge in multiple gestations. And some of those babies are born to mothers who have a history of twins. And that's fine. That just is, is a natural twinning. But then there are those that are young that want to have babies that get a hold of the fertility drugs. And they take them and... You know, so controlling that because clearly multi mul multiple gestations lead to earlier birth, particularly when they're artificially induced because you're not designed for it, 
whereas the natural ones, there's more of a, you know, a coordination. Um, so obviously, healthcare providers' responsibilities to their patients and education is critical. And once, you know, you have education, you have better understanding, that should improve it. And then, of course, access is another uh, part of it. But yes, we should, in our nation, be doing much better when it comes to preterm birth rates. Um, the introduction of um, progesterone administration has really helped because many women were progesterone deficient, giving rise to preterm birth. So understanding in science is one of the other, but getting that science from the bench to the bedside is the other critical piece. So we're a long way from perfect for sure. Yes. Right. So now I regret my decision at uh, 10 o'clock last night, which was to take out the slide showing <laughs> the small chain fatty acid production in response to the human milk oligosaccharides. So one of the things about small chain fatty acids is getting them to the right place. So what the human milk oligosaccharides allow one to do is to trigger the bacteria that are adjacent to the intestine where the small chain fatty acids like butyrate and acetate actually deliver their effects and, are, and also circulate systemically. There are people who are engineering bacteria, which gets to your point, to do this without the fiber stimulation. So engineered bacteria will become a part of our guts, whether that, you know, the full consequences of that, I suppose, will yet to be determined, but thank you for bringing up the true messenger of the human milk oligosaccharide. <laughs> and there's a question behind you, the um, young gentleman. What type of dietary choices can help like, promote nutritional uh, benefits in human So that is, and I think, Rachel, you may have asked me that question earlier, or, or, um, or you may have thought about that question. You may be the expert. So clearly, dietary choices are important. Um, there is a vast literature on that, um, and I can't offer advice around it, but a balanced diet, low in carbohydrates <laughs> with the right amount of fat, a natural diet as possible is, is what the recommendation would be because I don't think we have the true insight, you know, other than cow's milk protein allergy or peanuts or things like that, which cause problems in the baby. But human milk reduces allergies, so it's a part and parcel of all of the things, and that's without knowing about the mother's diet. If a mother is exposed to peanuts because of the toxin, that actually often gives rise to a baby who has a higher incidence of allergic disease um, after birth. So it is a complex world, and Rachel may be in the thick of some interventions in her practice, I'm not sure. Okay. Great. Yes. Um, I have a 
feedback. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It is, you know, as you've said, it's not an area of focus at Prolacta, but there clearly are signals that are different between the baby and the mother with suckling, which are absent if mother is mechanically expressing her milk. And we've turned into a society of expressors so that mothers can go back to work and express their milk while they're away from the baby. And there may be subtle changes, but I would say the balance of good to provide the breast milk is certainly there. But there are researchers in England, uh, Mary Fretrell, for example, her work talks very specifically about the differences in various hormones in the milk that hasn't been suckled and the connection between the mom and the baby. Because clearly there is a, um, a nervous system that is activated with direct suckling. Um, in terms of, you know, locations for mothers to breastfeed, there are acts and bills that are passed in states, and you can walk through most airports and find a little cubby hole that you can duck into. And I think most places of employment, at least in California, have to offer a breast pump room. Uh, hospitals have to have a breast pump room. You have to be able to provide that as a service. And so long gone are the days of finding a closet somewhere to, to, to do it. But thank you for your question. Yes. So I think the, the jury is out on the direct baby contact, but what is very clear is what the World Health Organization recommends in terms of duration of breastfeeding. So minimum six months, if you can get to a year with other foods, that's best. But again, um, you know, I think obviously direct breastfeeding is best because milk production is better. You have the connection between the mom and the baby. But in our society, it's becoming unrealistic. And so I would rather have a mother expressing her milk by pumping and feeding it in a bottle to the baby than not at all. And six weeks is the duration of most maternity leaves, and that, unfortunately, is the duration of most breastfeeding. So it's not a good thing. Yes? So that's a, a beautiful question, and yes, they can fully recover. So the little boy I showed you, Micaiah, he is, for all intents and purposes, fully recovered. Of course, you know, the control is if he'd been born term, and we'll never know, but you can't tell. He doesn't have bleeds in his brain. He doesn't have any evidence of cerebral palsy. He sees, he hears, he runs, he's happy, he eats. Um, versus the child who doesn't survive or has severe complications. The risk of complications obviously is higher if you're born preterm, which is why eliminating preterm birth is the way you eliminate the medical problem. So it is possible, and that certainly drives my desire to continue you know, um, to do what I do, both at the bedside and uh, you know, from a corporate perspective. Oops. Oh, go ahead. So, is it more 
there are some genetic. There are, there are women who, for example, don't have adequate levels of progesterone, and they, they don't have it with one pregnancy. They're likely not to have it for another. So it's likely to be some genetic component. There are also women who have, um, and it's a name I hate, it's called incompetent cervix. It just sounds like it's your fault, <laughs> that have a, you know, an, a cervix that can't sustain a pregnancy, and that's a recurrent issue. So, you know, as we become more and more um, aware of the various genes that are present and result in these diseases, I'm sure there's a genetic underlying cause, but yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, so um, I took that slide out at 9 p.m. last <laughs> night. <laughs> so, yes, in fact, we have uh, two clinical trials that are ongoing with our products for patients that are born at term that have congenital heart disease or have congenital gut disorders. So yes, our products do have applicability to other infant populations for sure. And thank you for the question. Yeah. Facing. Right. Number one, cost, cost, and cost, which is why I spend about 30% of my time working with states to enact bills that provide insurance reimbursement for our product. So I think the overwhelming abundance of evidence is there. Because if I take a neonatologist and say, would you use our product, even if they didn't think I was from prolactis, so I'm not forcing them to answer yes, they would say yes, but we can't because it's too expensive. And the, we, do, we help them do the pharmacoeconomic studies to look at their patients, look at their disease incidences, and then calculate for them based on their actual hospital's cost for say, necrotizing enterocolitis, particularly if it's surgical. It's a $250,000 experience at a minimum, whereas our product is $10,000 per month of use. And so you can either spend $30,000 or you can spend $234,000 plus. And so once they have the bandwidth to understand the pharmacoeconomic picture, and if you have legislation to support reimbursement, which exists in New Jersey, it exists in uh, New York, uh, it will soon exist in California. If we can get other states to move in this direction, we'll be in a good place. One of the challenges is, and a, and a legislator said this to us, I don't want to pay $10,000 for food. That's too expensive when formula is free. And then uh, another very astute member of the committee said, um, how much do you think recombinant factor eight costs? Which is a medicine for a disease, and human milk is a medicine for a disease, prevent a disease, and it's extremely expensive. So the mindset to move the thoughts about human milk from food to medicine are gonna really facilitate things, and particularly in those states 
like California, New, Jer New York, and New Jersey, where human milk is regulated as a tissue. Because you pay for tissues. You, bone marrow transplant is a tissue. It's expensive, and no one's arguing about that. So, you know, this, is, this will be the journey, but cost reimbursement is very, very helpful. For-profit institutions have left less of a challenge. My county of Los Angeles hospital was adverse to the cost, and then they wanted to improve their human milk use because they get funds if they use human milk, and they are now all in. So the county of Los Angeles is using human milk and the fortifiers. UCLA is not because they think the cost is too much. So the statement which makes it the standard of care is also going to be helpful because then there's no alternative. Then you have to do it. Another question? Yes, yeah, so we are not selling the oligosaccharide as a product yet, but you ask a question because it's all economics. And the way we look at our natural resource, which is human milk, it's very expensive. The better we use every ml of that milk, we can actually underwrite the cost of the nutritional product. Um, and we have several other iterations already of the human milk oligosaccharide purification procedure to make it more efficient, to make it more pure. And so constant process improvement is certainly there, but it really f it makes us think that you know every extra ml of the milk that we use for something else, we actually can lower the cost of the nutritional product. Yeah. Yeah. Well, blood, but that's a little different because blood is nonprofit. There are for-profit blood banking. The plasma industry is certainly for-profit. Um, but what makes milk so different is it's a food, and it could also be a biotherapeutic. It could be a drug. But I think, you know, we've known, for example, um, there's a, there are lots of botanicals that have medicinal properties. And, you know, our, the founders of our nation had a leaf of digitalis to make the palpitations go away, and so on and so forth. Um, and their siacilic acid is still purified from the bark of a tree. So though, if those are the precedents, but we're not, you know, so the unique aspect of milk is it this nutritional piece. Um, we certainly don't want to deconstruct it to the point where it's not recognizable as nutrition, because that would be a disservice to the babies that need it the most. And so that is always our thought is we would never deprive a baby of the nutritional part of our, our, our uh, human milk, but we just utilizing that stuff that would otherwise go down the drain. Um, so the precedents are, are going to grow. I think the bio botanicals world um, certainly going to grow. It'll be different, though, because it'll be looking for the drug activity, not unless it's spinach or something like that. But Essentially, I think this is kind of a first if you exclude um, whole blood and, and plasma. Well, we like that. 
so much for coming and sharing. Your work with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me.